Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, Dr. Adriana Popescu here with you today with another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I am really excited today to have with me as my guest is Marilyn Bradford. She's a licensed clinical social worker and an author, therapist, teacher, and speaker who gives lectures and workshops about addiction worldwide. Her groundbreaking book, Right Recovery for You, offers a radical and effective approach to ending any addictive or compulsive disorder. Marilyn's worked in the field of addiction for over 30 years. Finding traditional treatment ineffective, she approached Gary Douglas, the founder of Access Consciousness, to see what might be possible. And together, they founded Right Recovery for You, a unique program which utilizes transformational tools and techniques to empower people to permanently end addictive behavior. Marilyn facilitates teleclasses, in-person classes, and private sessions dealing with all the ways that addiction shows up, including addiction to judgment, being wrong, alcohol, relationships, food, and eating disorders, cigarettes, poverty, drugs, fixing other people's problems, polarity, and playing small. She also and many more <laughs> and many many more. I know the list of addictions is endless. She's also a certified access consciousness facilitator and facilitates various access classes. Welcome, Marilyn. Thank you. So glad to be here and love the work you're doing. Really transformational. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's just been you know in these last couple of years so important to me as I see so many people struggling. As I've worked in this treatment paradigm, you know, with mental health for over 20 years now, and just seeing the limitations that people come up against in the yeah. traditional paradigm, right? Yeah. People yeah. who come to me who are like, I've been in therapy for 20 years, dealing with this same thing, my same trauma, my same addiction, whatever it is. And I feel like I'm just getting nowhere with talk therapy and yeah. they're seeking something different. And, you know, I've discovered these amazing tools, so have you, and I just want to let more people know that these tools are out there and they're available and the podcast is just, you know, in the service of that. So wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Yes. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, how you came to do this work, how you discovered these more non-traditional therapies, all that. Absolutely. Well, uh, back in the 80s, I was diagnosed as an alcoholic and a depressive. And before that, as a child, I, I, in retrospect, I was addicted to sugar, all these different things. So I went through traditional treatment, 12-step outpatient, outpatient treatment um, therapy for quite a while. And at one point, my I, I was making changes. A divorce was going on. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. He says, I think you'd be a good therapist. I'm like, really? <laughs> okay. And so I went back to graduate school to become a clinical social worker and specialized in addiction, which at that time was, of course, more traditional model. 
So I started working in a hospital, a psych hospital, back in the days when people could actually stay six to eight weeks. So you could do some real work with them. Um, then after I was certified to do my own work, I worked with a psychiatrist, I developed a private practice. But the entire time I was like, there's got to be something better. This whole business of traditional treatment where someone wants to ask me, what is AA like? And I'm like, well, here you go. I want you for two weeks, every morning and every evening to make a list where you're selfish, self-seeking, dishonest and afraid and see how you feel. <laughs> it was like, whoa. And I, this, I had this sense of the whole making people wrong was and powerless was not actually in the long term going to be empowering or going to be giving them the best that they could have. But I didn't know what else to do because that's the main paradigm. I mean, I looked at rational recovery. I looked at women for sobriety. I tried everything that was out there and I took little pieces. And I'm not saying that 12 step is wrong. I think it works for some people. But I was looking for something that would be much more empowering. So for completely different reasons, I got into access consciousness. A friend was like, hey, listen to these audios. And I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. I love the idea that the tagline was empowering you to know that you know, because that is not at all what this reality society says. It says you don't know, and we're going to put our answer on you and you need to follow our answer. So I'm like, hmm, this is really different. So I started doing access classes and I started using the access tools with my clients in my private psychotherapy practice and they were getting better faster. I was like, huh, okay. So after doing that for a couple of years, I approached Gary Douglas and said, hey, can we do something with, right, with, a, with addiction and access? He's like, yeah. And there was already a right body for you. That was the only right class at the time. And I'm like, what about right recovery for you? He said, why not? We'll start the right classes. So we started it that way. And it was very interesting because about, I can't remember exactly. My sense of time is not great. Um, but about two years into that, I was actually then not living in Santa Fe. I was visiting and I went into a, uh, a, a place for lunch, a nice place for lunch. And I asked my body, I'm like, well, what do you want? Do you want coffee or Pellegrino? Those were the main things that I drank. My body says, I want a glass of red wine. I was like, I hadn't had any alcohol for 15, 16 years. And still all of that, you drink again, you die, you know, you're once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, all of these myths and things that are perpetrated upon people. So I took a deep breath and I said, okay. So we had a glass of red wine and I didn't even really finish it. And I called Gary and I said, I just had a glass of red wine. He said, how was it? I was like, it was good. I didn't want any more. And what I realized is with accurate information and tools, you don't ever have to be that label again, ever. And that doesn't mean you should drink. A lot of people choose not to. And I would like to say too, that there are people who are actually allergic to alcohol. They should not drink. Just as there are people who are allergic to peanuts, but they don't call themselves peanutaholics and go to meetings. They just don't eat peanuts. You know, so each person has to choose for them 
But what I really discovered was there are empowering tools that allow you to truly know what you know and to make real choices. And from that, Right Recovery for You is just developed and developed as everything in access, it changes. And about three years into the program, I realized, wait a minute, there's addiction to, and I'll talk about what addiction is later, but there's addiction to you know, alcohol and drugs and the common ones, gambling, sex, but also to being right, to being wrong, to trauma, drama, to, excuse me, to uh, helping other people, to being a healer and a fixer. There's, there are all of these ways that addiction shows up and they're all secondary. The primary addiction that underlies it all and which from my point of view is why so many people who try to stop can't is the addiction to judgment and the wrongness of self. And that is so painful for people that if they try to stop alcohol or if they try to stop being the perfect mom or they try to stop you know, getting money, it, the, the pain of that sense of judgment and wrongness is compels them to go back into whatever their particular addiction is. So unless you address that, nothing's really gonna change. Yeah, yeah. I have a colleague who calls it toxic shame. It's the toxic yeah. shame that eats you up inside and it's so um, intense and awful that uh, yes, of course you would want to reprieve. You're trying to get away from that feeling by drinking or whatever the behavior is, right? Exactly. Yeah. So tell us then from your perspective, yeah, how would you define that term addiction? Well, for me, addiction is an energy looking for a target. It's not the target. Mm -hmm. It's how whatever actually appeals to that person for whatever reason, that that's the thing they're going to choose. And I tell this story about my own family. So my grandmother had two daughters and each of them, my mom and my aunt had two daughters. There's no history of alcoholism in my family that we know of. We looked. Of the four daughters, three became alcoholic and one became a raging codependent. Now, if you look closely, there's a lot of uh, history of addictive behavior in my family. The energy of addiction, which is the energy of basically vacating yourself, your being for a substance or an activity. My father was addicted to workaholism. I mean, he would work from early in the morning. He would come home for dinner. You, didn't, you couldn't disturb him. He'd be in the office until... 10 or 11 at night. My mother is addicted to criticism, being cynical and just critical and penuriousness. And I used to think that was a character trait, but I realized that no matter what, she would choose that. Mm -hmm. You know, that was her go-to. And my aunt was, and I don't mean to just solidify what was going on. It's more complicated, but we're, you know, we're in a short interview. So you know, she was addicted to being to being less than and wrong and kind of the mouse and pathetic. And so it's just an energy that the four of us girls picked up. And then we looked for our target for that energy. Mm -hmm. So if if we can move away from the target of addiction is what addiction is, it's not alcoholism, it's it's the being willing to 
use the energy of addiction to leave yourself because you don't know how to, that's the other thing about when you grow up in the energy of addiction, you don't know how to manage anything because they don't teach you. They don't know how to manage anything. So life is this like, and you need something, some place to go for relief or that sense of, I can't handle this. And that's what you basically learn from the energy of addiction is I can't handle this. I need to leave. I need to find a target for this energy. It really is that escapist idea. Yes. Right? yes. Where but it, I it, it's not escapism because people are weak or stupid or anything. It's not like just, I want a joy ride. It's that I literally don't have the skills to manage life. I, I don't. And all I was shown in my family growing up was you find a way to, you find a diversion, you find a way to not have to be present. People who grow up in families with that addictive energy have no concept of what being present means. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them aren't even present in their bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Not at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No bodies are like left behind in the ditch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that gets compounded. You know, one of the areas I also work in is with trauma, yes. right? And you, and you write about this in, in your book yes. as well, you know, that there is a connection between kind of this, what we call dissociation, right? Yes. Right. Out of your body, both yes. with addiction and with trauma. Can you say yes. more about that? Well, they're very closely linked. Um, in fact, I'm looking at doing a new class about the connection between abuse, I'm just calling it abuse and addiction because they're, most of the people that go into addictive behaviors have been abused in some way. Now, if you look at it, it doesn't mean that the person doing the abuse was aware of it. But if you're in an addictive energy and you have children, it's abusive in the sense that you're not present with them and they're not taught about life and the skills that they need. So it can be as simple as that. It can be neglect, it can be, and so you're kind of left with, I don't get it, you know, I don't, I don't know how to act and nobody's here to teach me how to act. And, and of course it can be much more severe. It can be physical, sexual and abuse takes on so many different forms. It can be financial, it can be religious or spiritual. Um, there are many, many forms of abuse I look at abuse as, as um, something that demeans and degrades and disempowers the body or the being. Mm. So it can show up in a lot of different ways, but that leaves someone with a sense of nothingness. Right. Yeah. And so, well, maybe I could just hook up with a relationship or a sex partner or maybe food. That's the answer. You know, it's, it leaves people looking outside of themselves for some way to fill up and feel okay. Yeah. And yeah. the thing is, you know, it may work for a while, right? Yes, absolutely. Because there is pleasure to be had from food and, and sex and the attention of meeting somebody new and all of that. Yeah. Yes, right? or having power and money or political or, yeah, there are lots of ways it can feel good for a while. Right, and then it goes sideways. Yeah, and then it goes sideways. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so another thing that comes up um, that you talk about as well is that many people seem to be 
we call it self-medicating, you know, in the traditional paradigm. But some, but a lot of people seem to be using these addictive patterns, substances, behaviors, whatever it is, to avoid their awareness when they're oh, highly yeah. sensitive, highly aware, and yes. picking up on all kinds of stuff around them. Um, there's a way in which they, again, maybe like believe that they can't cope with it. It's too much. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Well, we're not taught. We're not taught anything as children about awareness. The only thing we're taught about is answer. So we go looking for answer, not really getting that what we're experiencing in awareness could actually create a lot more for us. Our parents aren't aware in general. School, I mean, most of the people in this reality aren't aware and avoid awareness. You know, they go on uh, image, they go on roles, they go on solidification. I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm a dad, I'm a fireman, I'm an accountant, I'm a this. They go on these identities that have nothing to do with awareness. So of course people are avoiding awareness because they're not shown what it is or how to work with it or that it can be an incredible contribution to them. And the more you can help people be present, and sometimes you have to do you know, some in your body exercises and that kind of thing. Okay, so, what are you, so if you weren't judging this person or if you weren't pretending that you were this or that, what would you be aware of? That's a question I ask clients a lot. If you weren't doing blank, what would you be aware of? And helping people begin to learn to identify awarenesses and then it's not the enemy, it's actually the friend. And it's what can just launch them into a greater life and a greater sense of self and being. Excuse me, I think that's one of the, that's behind that empowering you to know that you know. You see, awareness is knowing that you know. And we're taught that we can't know, that only the experts can know. So that sense of emptiness and desperation that so many people have is so much about, well, maybe this expert can tell me and maybe this expert can tell me and where's the answer? And I've read all these self-help books and nothing's changing and, you know, and nothing really works until each being comes back to themselves. And that to me is what recovery really is. Mm -hmm. It's not stopping a behavior unless it's actually harming you but it's coming to that sense of recovering you, recovering and creating the being, allowing yourself to know what you know and not giving a fig about what anybody else says, mm -hmm. not being dependent on all those external answers. They most likely don't fit you and have nothing to do with you. Yes. Yeah. I find, you know, working at a recovery center, you know, rehab, um, that many of the women, we work just with women who come through there, don't even have a sense of who they are. They, no, they're absolutely. really, yeah. they're so disconnected from that, you know, their, I don't know, true essential self, authentic yes. self, whatever we want to call it. They're so disconnected from that, um, that they don't even know. And it's very disconcerting for them sometimes to let go of the idea that, what do you mean that there's more to me than being a mom, a wife, a whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we're, people aren't given the possibilities and the opportunities to 
actually develop who they are. I mean, how many parents look at their child and basically go, hi, who are you? What matters to you? What would you like to do? What we get is, hello, you're a Smith and this is what we believe and this is how you behave and this is your culture and this is what you need to do. And the being is like, ah, what about me? But eventually and pretty early on that just gets squashed. Yes. And, and, and there's no choice That's no. The stuff that I get. Like so many of the clients are in this choiceless kind of space. Yeah. They yeah. talk about the powerlessness. Um, there's also a big identity around victimhood. Yes. I'm a victim because these like terrible things have happened to me. They're very attached to their story. Yes. Um, and they really are functioning in this choiceless universe. Can you say more about that? Well, People are attached to their story because they don't have anything else. It's not a wrongness. It's like a last ditch effort to have some kind of identity and way of explaining what's going on. So I do often listen to stories and I'll even ask people, I mean, there's so many ways, you know, you want to introduce conclusion and you want to introduce what was the meaning and there's, you know, so many ways to look at it, but Sometimes I'll ask people, okay, so if you didn't have that story, who would you be? What choices would you have? So just creating a little crack in that universe of story and what else might be possible? Oh, well, I'd be different. Okay, how, how might you be different? Well, what if you just let go of your story? You know, but I do get, I mean, one of the things I always say to clients is all behavior is purposeful. It's not to be judged. You did it because it was the best choice you had at the time. It was the only thing you knew how to do. So what if we look at some other ways of being or some other choices that you might make that nobody told you about? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And one really useful tool towards that is the question, right? The Absolutely. power of a question is a yeah. question of powers. Can you tell us about that? how you use questions? Well, one of the questions I always ask my clients is what's right about your addiction you're not getting. They're like, what? What? It's hard. It's terrible. It's wrong. And I'm like, well, just let's go with this. What's right about your addiction you're not getting. And we begin to look at all the ways the addictive behavior is used in areas where the person doesn't know how to cope, like their marriage is falling apart or they have foster kids and it's not working out well, or they're about to be fired. So all of these things, though, I said, look, you know, this was the only coping skill you had at the time. It's gonna be crazy for you to try to completely stop drinking or stop being perfect or stop gambling or stop sex. When that's what you're using to handle things that you don't know how to handle. So let's, let's see if we can minimize negative repercussions from behavior, whatever that is. And in the meantime, look at other ways to deal with being fired or taking on a new job or having a child die or all these things that happen to people or that we create. And let's not get into that right now, but um, you know, all of these life things that they don't have any other coping skills and don't know that they can handle. That's the thing. So many people don't actually believe that they can handle things. And some of that comes from that whole business of being different. Because the idea is you're not like us, so you won't be able to handle this. Rather than, you know what? 
what if being different gave you an edge and you could deal with much more than most other people can? It's your genius. And I once said to a young woman, this totally beautiful, young, talented woman who's like, but I'm so different, I don't fit in. And I'm, I'm like, yes, you are different. Get over it. That's your gift. That's your brilliance. Everybody who's ever made a contribution in this world, like Picasso or Mahatma Gandhi or whomever you want to name, has done so from their difference. Yes. It was like, oh, you know, and that's a really important concept for people to get. Yes. But so many people were made wrong from oh, yes. they're tiny, you know, they get the message, you're weird, you're different, you're too much, you're not enough. And, and, you know, people cut off the parts and pieces of themselves so they can, you know, get more vanilla and fit in and be like everyone else. Absolutely. Right? Yes, absolutely. That's what they do. They cut themselves off that then fold, mutilate themselves in order to, and they never fit in. And that's what I said. Have you ever fit in? Have you ever felt comfortable like everybody else? No, I'm like, and you never will. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's turning all the belief systems upside down, yes. but that gives people freedom, real freedom. Yes. I love that, I, you know, we hear in access classes sometimes the phrase, you know, what if, or the question really, what if every wrongness of you was actually a strongness of you? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and that really blows people's minds. I mean, it's yes. just far yeah. out of there. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think too, when people are trying so hard to fit in um, and they are cutting off those parts and pieces of themselves, they're left with so little that then the behavior, the addictive behavior becomes the solace, the go-to. Yes, well, I finally get to be me when I've had a few drinks and I'm in my own little, you know, fog or a little zone, that's when I can finally be me. And so it becomes this real trap, I think, where um, you're not allowing yourself to be your difference and to be whatever that is. You can only get in little glimmers in these, you know, pockets of this behavior that oftentimes is going to blow up in your face because the there'll be a price to pay for it afterwards, right? Yeah, very well put. Absolutely. That's this vicious cycle that people get in. Yeah. yeah. So when you work with people, how might it look different than like traditional talk therapy? Well, for one thing, I ask questions. <laughs> I don't just sit there like a blank screen and I don't give answers. You know, I'll generally start with, hey, what's up? Mm -hmm. Well, I, or, or here's an example. Someone will walk in and say, this was kind of pre-access, but they would walk in and say, I'm depressed. I'm like, how do you know? I'm like, what do you mean, how do I know? How do you know you're depressed? My doctor told me, well, what does he know? I really, <laughs> I really start getting people to be in the question themselves. And I think that's very different from traditional talk therapy. I get them to begin to question everything about all their assumptions. I introduce ideas of conclusions. So if you didn't come to the conclusion that you were depressed, what would you be aware of? Mm -hmm. Or what's going on in your life? Well, my dad died, so that's why I'm depressed. I'm like, really? What was your relationship with your dad like? He was a jerk, I hated him. So maybe that's not actually relevant here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and I, la I do find myself laughing a lot and getting them to laugh and that, you know, laughter just creates a space and an ease where people can begin to relax and not make things so significant 
you know, and that's another question. Well, if you didn't, I mean, I said, I'm not, and, I, and I'll, sometimes I use the whole caveat thing. I'm not saying it wasn't, but let me just ask you, if you didn't make this significant, what would you be aware of? Right. You know, and they're like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. It really wasn't that bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. So who are you trying to please with the, the trauma drama behavior? Yes. My mom, she needs me to be that. So you just ask those questions that help people to unravel what's actually going on rather than what the authorities and the self-help and the experts say is going on. Because they do know. And then you're also empowering them, once again, to know what they know. Yes. I think it's helpful, too, to ask people about, like, where did this come from? You know, because people are functioning with these points of view. We talk about how your point of view creates your reality. And people are functioning from these points of view, these conclusions, like, I'm an alcoholic, or I am not enough. I am blah, blah, blah. Where's that coming from? You know, how do you know that, like you say, how do you know that's true? Where's it coming from? And is it even yours? Can you say yes, that? Who's about that? Absolutely. And, and what age are you being? And who's running the show here? And who are you being? Yeah. I mean, I once worked with a woman who, um, well, she came for alcoholism. She, I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, okay, well, you know, how do you know? And never mind. And she was working with me for about six weeks and nothing was changing. And you don't work with me for six weeks if you're interested in change and nothing changes. So finally I said, whose alcoholism is it anyway? And she said, oh, it's my mom's. And she never had another problem with drinking. I mean, it's just insanity. Right. What we take on. Yes. I had a woman, it reminds me of a woman I worked with many years ago, pre-access also, who um, we realized that her alcoholism was also a way to stay connected with her father who Ah. had died and was an alcoholic. Yes, absolutely. We do. We choose these things for the craziest reasons to heal others, to stay connected, to be part of things, to, but they're not real. And that's what you have to help people to get. Mm-hmm. Not actually real. Can you say something more about that addiction to fixing and healing others? You know, like in our, in traditional treatment, we might call that codependency, right? And it seems to go kind of hand in hand with some of the other addictive behaviors. What is that? Well, it's another way to try to counteract the addiction, the primary addiction to judgment and the wrongness of self. If I can show that I'm helping others, maybe I can have value or be all right. And it becomes an identity so that there are people who will go so far as to neglect their partners or their children or whatever. Well, Mrs. Mulch needs me to go and sit with her because she's sick. You know, maybe she has the flu. I mean, she's not, it's not like she's dying or anything, but people, it's as much of an addictive behavior as drinking because it's got that compulsiveness that if I don't do this, I'll be wrong. I'll be even more wrong. I can't stand the craving to go help people. Um, and it's very, very destructive. Well, yes. And you're not being present with yourself. You're no. not attending to your own needs, right? Your body's needs and everything. You're pushing yourself all the time. Yeah. You're overriding your being and your body to go do this thing. So you look good. And I don't mean that from the point of view of, I just want to look good. I mean it from the point of view of, a, of the finite, the faux being 
this constant need to prove that you're not wrong. Yes. Yeah, which is, that's, it's, yeah, well, it's, it's sad. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not an easy thing. No, no, it is very difficult, you know, to, like, I, I'm thinking of a woman that's we've been working with recently at the rehab who has this really strong self-judgment that I am permanently uh, broken. I am permanently mm -hmm. defective because of abuse that she, really horrific right. abuse she got early on. And it's really been challenging to, um, it's like she clings on to that identity for dear life. It's been so yeah. difficult to work with her around a different, showing her a different possibility. You know, how do you deal with those clients who are just so entrenched in this really awful way of seeing themselves? Well, once again, I go to, well, there's a couple ways that I go to it. One is if you weren't making the abuse greater than you, who would you be and what might be possible? And what have you decided it means? I often look at meaning because meaning is something that we create. So if it didn't mean this, what else could it mean? And now this is a more advanced concept, but it's one you have to, at least for me, you have to sort of just become aware when it's possible to use, but that is that abuse is not personal. Mm -hmm. People take it, I must be wrong, I must be bad. No, that person would abuse anybody. Yes. You were just the convenient target. Yes. You know, and if you can actually get people to begin to look at that, it can change everything. Yes. Right. Because children are so kind of, you know, egocentric. Of they course. Think, and they think it's all the world revolves around me. Everything it's all is about me. It's yeah. all about me. And it's also all my fault, right? Yes. Bad is happening to me if I'm being abused or neglected. Uh, I don't understand as a child that mom, dad, whoever has their own issues that they maybe they were abused and they're just pa you know passing it on. I don't understand any of that. I think if I'm um, if I'm being hurt, it's my fault. Exactly. I must be bad. I must be wrong. I must be not yeah. enough. Yeah. So if you can get them away from and 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 that's a perfect way of talking about it because that's what I do often is I talk about how children are egocentric mm -hmm. and everything revolves around them and I sometimes even say things like so if the four-year-old wasn't running your life and telling that story what would you be aware of as a 23-year-old you know um, because they get and of course trifold sequencing system they get stuck in that excuse me um so that's one way to talk about it. And, the, and you can also at times say, well, did your receiving the abuse prevent something bad from happening to anybody else? Now that's actually, that's sort of a conclusion with a question. It just depends, you know, on the situation, how you want to phrase it. You can also say like, so what was the outcome of your willingness to receive the abuse? And they'll usually say, I knew I could handle it. And exactly. that if I took the abuse, my little sister or whoever would be left alone. Yes. Right. Well, how brilliant were you? Yeah. How strong were you? How strong sure? were you? Exactly. And that people, abusers choose people to abuse who they get are more powerful than they are because they have this idea that, well, if I can abuse you, maybe I can get some of that power. So it's also about just letting people know how powerful and potent they are. 
Yes. And, what, so and what they created with that. So, I mean, there's, yeah, as you know, there's a lot of different facets to it and ways to approach people and ways to talk about it. And there's some people who never want to give up being a victim. And that's like, okay, yeah, that's your choice. That is right. And if you want to live your whole life defined by what happened to you between four and 12, you can do that. And that really brings me to the last piece I want to explore with you, which is we as the helpers, yeah. um, you know, so much I see, um, especially with, um, I do see it with the trained mental health professionals, but I also see it a lot with the counselors who tend to be, you know, like peers, other people themselves mm -hmm. in recovery um, who want to help and they work in these programs and things like that. But there's this mentality sometimes of we have to save them. It's like we have to, you know, do everything we can to save these people. And that results in a lot of emotional trauma and drama for us as the, you know, helper. Um, can you say more about how you this different approach actually works better for us too? Well, yes, because for one thing, if you have to save someone, you're thinking of yourself as extremely superior. It's a very arrogant position because what you're basically saying is this person is pathetic and has no choice. And the whole thing for me from access that underlies all of this is that people have choice. They may not know it, but one of the things that we can be and do as therapists, as whatever, is to acknowledge and honor the choices that people make. And also get them into the idea, get them into the awareness to the question of, if I choose this, what does that create? And I love this story that Gary talks about his daughter when she was very young. She wanted to, there was something on the stove and she was gonna go touch it. And he didn't say, don't do that. Let me save you from touching the stove. He said, if you choose to touch the stove, it's going to hurt. And he began very early on introducing the concept of your choice creates. And I think that's, that's a way to honor clients. It's a way to honor ourselves. We don't have the right to tell somebody what to choose. Yes. We really don't. And when we can back off from that, we can back off from taking this false responsibility of the outcome. Of course, you're going to do whatever you can do to facilitate and empower. And they have choice. Right. And we it's not your fault or anything like that. Right. Like, uh, you know, so many therapists, uh, you know, blame themselves, you know, what, yeah. what else could I have done? You know, if there's a suicide or an overdose or something like that, oh, you know, I should have, could have, whatever. I mean, I think it behooves us as, as therapists to really look at, do we have our own addiction to fixing healing? Yes, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then the other piece, in, I think embedded in what you said is when we move out of judgment ourselves, when we stop judging our clients' choices as right or wrong or good or bad, how much freedom can come for us? Yeah, exactly. No, that's very well put. Absolutely. Yeah. And I work all the time, you know, with training staff, I yeah. like teaching them about allowances, you know, like what if we could just, what if the most caring thing we can do is to let the clients choose whatever they're going to choose, however crazy or yeah. stupid it may seem, letting them choose that so that they can learn that when they make that choice, there's going to be some sort of consequence. 
They yes. may not like what that consequence is. We may not like what it is, but it's their choice to make, not ours. But it's their choice. And you don't know what path somebody's on. You really don't. I mean, that's that whole arrogance sometimes, that hubris of therapists. It's like, well, I know what you should do. And this is the, no, you don't actually. Yeah. You don't. You're there to ask questions and facilitate and offer clarity. And that's what we do you know, and give information that they may not have and give possibilities they may not have. Yeah. And then it's up to them to do what they choose to do with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're just catalysts. Or we are catalysts. I use the analogy of midwives, you know, like you're the one yeah. giving birth. You're the one going through all the labor and pain. I'm just here to like support you through the process. Exactly. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Facilitate. Yeah, exactly whatever I can with what I know, here it is, take what works for you. And if not, that's okay. I don't get attached to the outcome that you have to, you know, see things from my point of view. What do you know? Right. right. And that's the other thing. So many therapists don't actually get that they have these fixed points of view yeah. and that that's what creates difficulty for their clients. Yes. Oh, yeah. this has been such a rich conversation, Marilyn. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about your classes, you also have a training program for facilitators. Tell us more about how they can find you and what you're up to, what you're creating now. Well, thank you. It's been really fun for me. Um, and I'm very grateful you invited me. Just uh, MarilynBradford.com, M-A-R-I-L-Y-N-B-R-A-D-F-O-R-D.com. I do have a recovery of you with ease coming up. That class is normally a two and a half day in person, but with all the online, it's over five days. It starts July 17th and that's the intro. So you can just sign up for the intro. You don't have to sign up for the whole, it comes out to five days, um, three or four hours a day. So uh, that's coming up and I've got some taster series. I've done some things like uh, screen got you hooked. I have these one hour uh, video classes that are kind of fun, you know, like making yourself a priority and having all of you in relationship. And uh, so those are all in the shop and I do private sessions and I'm going to be doing some more. I'm going to probably be doing one with um, uh, the connection between abuse and addiction, because that just comes up and comes up and comes up. And uh, so lots going on, very excited about it. And yes. I'm looking forward to the future. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm super grateful for you and the work that you're doing. And, um, and right back at you. <laughs> Seriously. Thanks. Yes. Um, and thanks everyone for tuning in today. If you've liked the show, please do click like, share, comment. Let's get these uh, tools out there in the hands of more people. And see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.